Hi. So in this lecture, I'm going to talk about some concepts that are part of dramatic writing and have accrued over time. So some of, most of these, I would say, have been inherited, uh, modified, I should say, maybe not inherited. No, they have been inherited, uh, inherited from Aristotle's poetics, modified um, through various uh, centuries uh, to some of the language that is used in some circles, not in all circles of writing, around uh, playwriting and screenwriting. Uh, and the first one, and these are going to be somewhat in random order, uh, so bear with me. But um, the first one is the dramatic question, which I'm sure is a concept you've heard before, uh, fairly common. Uh, but, you know, so if some of this feels <clears throat> slightly pedantic, forgive me. Um, you know, um, it's, think of it as, as a review. And, you know, and for those of you that, um, for this, this is not pedantic. Thanks for being, uh, on board. I have my own issues, uh, with all of these terms. <laughs> so, um, I'll probably be debating myself, uh, throughout this lecture. But in any case, uh, the phrase, the dramatic question, what is it? So basically it refers to the major dramatic question, the central thematic idea on which the play is founded. It is the why behind your story and the source of relevance and connection for your audience. So often when you meet with a dramaturg uh, about your play or with a director or sometimes with a producer, um, they'll, they'll do that question, which I think has become people, I wouldn't say that people laugh at it in the industry, but there is a bit of a, a bit of a, oh my God, you're going to ask this. <laughs> uh, and the question is why now, right? So, so people say to you, why this play? Why now? And, and of course, part of that, they're referring to, uh, you know, uh, how is this relevant? Uh, what is it saying about the times that we live in? Um, the, those kinds of questions, which may not have much to do <laughs> with the central dramatic question of your play. And I think that this is where this becomes a little bit tricky, uh, because I think that as playwrights and screenwriters, often you're pitching a lot, uh, uh, but you're you're often being asked to talk about the why now of your story um, in ways that can, and this is my theory, can interfere with your discovering what the real dramatic question of your play is. And so, so it, it's, so what I'm saying that the tricky part of this is that it's sort of like a chicken and egg thing, right? It's sort of like you're being asked to talk about why the play is important, basically. <laughs> why is this important? Why you should produce my play, basically, is, is you know, from, from the writer's perspective, I think that the why now is, uh, is attached to both of those ideas, right? And, um, uh, but the, but the why now for your play 
is more about, given the dramatic situations that you've set up, what is the governing principle that's holding it together? So I think of, um, there's a play that I'm not that fond of, but uh, Eva Van Hove did this great production of Arthur Miller's A View from the Bridge, which happens to be uh, on demand uh, from the uh, platform National Theatre at Home. It's also in the Drama Online collection uh, digitally. Uh, and, uh, you know, this is, a, this is a good play to think about in terms of the dramatic question because and maybe one that when I, I can't even remember when I first read that play, um, where it didn't seem as apparent to me for some reason. But somehow seeing Evo's production made the dramatic question incredibly clear. And I think that one of the genius things about that production, and I do think it's one of his best uh, stagings, especially of, of modern American drama, is that he kind of stripped the play. He kind of took all the fuss away from the, from the play in terms of how it's been presented in the past and stripped it down, literally. Like the actors are, wear, are barefoot and are wearing very simple clothes. And it's a, it seems like a bare set. It's not a bare set. Um, but it has, it has a kind of illusion of starkness about it. Um, basically getting down to the meat of it, right? Getting down to the heart of the story. Um, and the dramatic question is the heart of the story. And in view from the bridge, the dramatic question rests in the intolerance uh, of the central character, Eddie Carbone, who is a domineering, controlling man, uh, who is, um, has been the guardian uh, of this young woman, um, and you know, he's sort of a father figure to her, and throughout the play, as she's you know, she's growing up and she's uh attracted to men, and uh, in this case, because it's heteronormative, um, and there's a kind of budding romantic relationship that's a subplot, Eddie Carbone feels his masculinity threatened uh, and his incestuous feelings toward this young woman kind of surface. Incestuous in the sense that he was a father figure to her, literally he raised her. Uh, and so there's been this uncomfortable, <laughs> to put it mildly, uh, relationship uh, between them, but one that he's completely blind to. So, and the play becomes about the recognition of that uh, those feelings and his his denial of those feelings. So it kind of the dramatic question centers around um, how he, he how he desires to control himself and his family, and that control leads to the the breakdown of that family and the familial structure of neighborhood and everything that he's built up. So the the kind of everything in the play is kind of pushing, pushing and pulling and exerting pressure on that central idea. So that's what the dramatic question is, right? It's like, what's the, what is at the heart of the play? 
that's a, maybe a better way to say it. Uh, what's at the heart of the play, and what, how is it built so that everything is kind of all the vector points in the play are kind of pointing in that direction, even if they're oblique, that they're they're kind of driving it forward. Um, and often when you're writing, you may not know what the dramatic question is, so you discover it as you work on your drafts. And so I think that, so I feel like, so this is my advice and, and maybe, you know, I think every, every writer works differently. I would say that as a writer, I feel like sometimes it's useful to get a draft out. Susan Steinberg, who's a wonderful poet and fiction writer talks about writing the ugly draft, like really trusting the ugly draft that you're writing. Um, and I really, I'm a big believer in that. I think that it's good to write the ugly draft, right? Draft where you don't really know what's going on and you're just kind of throwing it down and it's messy and it's weird and it's, um, it may not make entire sense and, you know, all those things. Um, because you deserve it, right? I think that one of the things is you deserve it. And then through that, you're sort of discovering what the play is, you know, um, unless you have an incredibly strong idea that leads you into the play, which sometimes happens in the act of writing, where you're like, oh my God, here it is, right? Um, and then and then you write and you discover the dramatic question along the way. Um, and this, so I'm going to circle back to this notion of the why now, because I know I was being slightly facetious um, before, um, you know, in terms of when people ask you, why now, why this play, all those things. I think that question can be useful, useful, not in a pitch situation where you're pitching, but more where you can sit with that, with that question with yourself and think, why, why this play now? Right? Like, I think that sometimes that why is this play important <laughs> question, which is not helpful uh, because art matters and shouldn't be justifying it every single second. Um, but the more interesting part of that question has to do with your discovering, your sitting and reflecting upon what is the true core heart of the play that you're writing. Uh, and, and indeed, you know, do you have scenes that are um, not necessary, that are kind of obscuring um, the driving force of the play, the heart of it, uh, maybe muddling and getting in the way of, of that heart being revealed? Um, and of course, you know, all plays work differently. And, uh, and, and for some plays, the dramatic question is um, more overt, I would say, a view from the bridge again, using that example, has a very overt, uh, dramatic question, um, which is not to say that there's no mystery, because I think that play, one of the interesting things about that play, and I think one of the reasons I thought Evo's production was so strong is that it reawakened the mystery in that play. Um, I think I, I think when I first read it, and also like, Maybe a production I'd seen, or maybe it was the film. There was a film version many years ago, um, and and I was just like, oh, this. Is, you know, I was to put it mildly, I was a little bit bored by the play. You know, I just oh, you know, it's it felt very stodgy. You know, it felt in the worst case of Miller. You know, um, 
stodgy, uh, um, you know, moralizing, preachy, you know, whatever words you want to use. When he's at his best as a writer, and, and I think that he was capable of brilliance, uh, Death of a Salesman, and uh, The Price, which I think is a fascinating play. Um, when he was at his best, I think that the, the moral question at the heart of the work um, is illuminated in ways that are ambivalent. Uh, and I think that one of the interesting things about being reawakened to a view from the bridge is that, indeed, the moral questions in that play um, and the ambivalence in that play and the tragedy of the play, because it is a tragedy, it's built as a tragedy in the Greek, ancient Greek sense, um, yeah, becomes really alive. And I think then the moral question of the play and the heart of the play is revealed. Uh, so it's a, it's a, so all to say is that, that having a dramatic question is something that you discover sometimes as you're writing. Sometimes you have it at the get-go. Well, I'll say about that is that, interestingly, I think that the dramatic question, when you have it early, uh, so I'm going to speak from personal experience for a second, um, obviously. Um, there have been occasions where I feel like the form and content speak to the dramatic question very early in the process. So, so we'll, where I will see kind of the container for the play and the container, like the physical, like the formal container of the play also um, illuminates and is central to the dramatic question. For me as a writer, that's like an exciting prospect. Like when that happens, it doesn't always happen. Um, uh, but when that reveals itself early in the writing process, it's like really exciting because it, it means that it harnesses the ideas very quickly. Um, so I'll give you an example. I was working on a play that's uh, structured like a live documentary for the stage, uh, like a film. Uh, and, um, you know, and it's a, it's a play about the construction of memory and the constructions of um, political tyranny and, and how those constructions and those surfaces uh, enact uh, methods of control on populations, but also the plays about how art is a method of control uh, upon an audience. Um, and the, the, con the conceit of the play formally, structurally, happened like very early in the process. Like I, I realized that that's what it was. Um, and then the subject matter, the sort of the questions at the heart, the heart of the, the dramatic question at the heart of the play was perfectly, seemed to me at least, that's my judgment, obviously, but perfectly aligned with the form. Uh, 
And so, so it just made the writing process really fun, right? Um, I'll give you an example. It's not mine, which is um, Carol Churchill's play Far Away, which is, of course, a masterpiece. Um, and in that play, the form, the form of it, the structure of it, the container, illuminates the dramatic question. Um, you know, it, that is a play about, partly, about, um, and it, well, sorry, what I will say is that when people say the about of a play, the about of a play is usually the dramatic question of the play. <laughs> uh, it's not like two people met and they fell in love and blah, blah, blah. Um, that's not what it's about. The, the about has to do with the dramatic question, right? So um, in Far Away, that, that's a play about a catastrophe, right? Uh, political catastrophe, ideological catastrophe, uh, tyranny, and blindness. I think that's centrally a play about blindness. And I mean blindness not like the condition, but um, kind of political blindness um, uh, and, and how political blindness leads to catastrophe. So, so yeah, this is my reading of Far Away. I, I mean, I think that it's a play about apathy um, and the, and the, uh, the, um, the damaging nature of political apathy. Uh, and because that play deals with both ecological and political catastrophe and combines those and, uh, and Carol Church and a lot of her late work, uh, is exploring those themes quite centrally and kind of they're, they're intertwining them. Um, you know, that everything in that play is sort of illuminating that idea, that central idea, um, to the point of the coup de théâtre moment in that play, which is the there's a a parade of of people wearing hats that are that are being made uh, by these two workers in a factory, and um, the people that are parading the hats are are going to be. Uh, a, exterminated right so there's a kind of like the workers in the factory know that they're part of a machine that's creating uh, a process of ethnic cleansing in the society that they live in which is an unnamed society and far away um but it's clearly authoritarian and totalitarian and dystopic and uh you know uh the play operates on a level of metaphor um, but, you know, the, the workers are in denial. They're not in, I would say they're in active denial, right? They're not like in denial, like they don't know. They know, but they're in active denial. They're suppressing their knowledge so that they can survive. Um, but they're also living with, um, uh, the, that they're part of the obscenity that's being happening in their society, you know? So, but they're basically their work is allowing this this ethnic cleansing ethnic cleansing to occur, um, uh, and so and that play is fascinating because the form so clearly, uh, elegantly, uh, illuminates the central dramatic question. So I would say sometimes instead of it's a roundabout way of saying that sometimes instead of beating yourself up about like oh how am I gonna Oh, what's my dramatic question? How am I going to build it? Blah, blah, blah. Sometimes the structure tells you 
what the dramatic question is. Um, so, you know, I think that sometimes you can do a kind of outside-in approach to your writing process um, where you don't kind of force the dramatic question upon the play, but you allow your, your playfulness with structure to kind of speak to you. Uh, I do think that structure, uh, sort of working outside-in, can be very helpful uh, and can allow you to discover your play, you know, um, partly because I think that there's something liberating about playing with structure. Um, it is playful and it is, um, there's no pressure around it, right? You can sort of say, oh, let me try, you know, I'll write a scene backwards or I'll write a scene where it's all reversals or, write, you know, you just kind of are playing because you're trying to figure it out, right? You're trying to figure out what your play is. And then it allows you to find the play, right? I think that it allows you to find what's at the heart of the play. And sometimes you find the dramatic question really late, like in a second draft or a third draft um, after you've written. So, um, yeah, uh, so I'll say that. Um, the, you know, people talk about what are good examples of dramatic questions. Um, you know, in, in Romeo and Juliet, you know, the question is, will, will Romeo and Juliet end up together, right? You know, like, <laughs> will they end up together? No. Um, well, yes. Well, no. Um, but I mean, everything in that play is about the obstacle, right? The obstacles in their way to get to them being together. And everything they do in that play is about their desire to be together. So will they end up together? Question mark is what's driving the plot, right? Like they, they meet, there's attraction, and then you're kind of, the audience is like, oh, I hope they stay together, you know, if they don't know the play, which, you know, I'm not gonna assume, some people don't know Romeo and Juliet, right? You know, so, um, and then, and then everything in that play is sort of driving toward that. Like, please, please, will they be together? Will they be together, you know? Uh, and and kind of the pressure is put on the characters and the situations that they're in. Um, can try to answer that question or not answer that question. I, I think that one of the one of the compelling notions around the concept of the dramatic question is that there are plays that don't answer, right? That are built around this idea of a question. But then that that question just keeps asking more questions of itself. Um, and there is no answer at the end, right? You know, uh, Two plays that come to mind readily uh, around this are um, uh, Samuel Beckett's Waiting for Godot, which, um, you know, poses his dramatic question fairly in its title, <laughs> no less. Um, they're waiting for Godot. Um, will Godot arrive? I mean, that's a dramatic question in, in Beckett's play. Will Godot arrive? The answer is no. Um, <laughs> Or yes, depending on how you interpret it, right? So, so, or we'll always be waiting for Godot, right? You know, so, but, you know, and everything in that play is about the act of will Godot arrive, right? Like, will, you know, will, the, will there be, you know, in that play, I think is will there be salvation, right? You know, I feel like that's sort of the, the existential question in that play. Um, and, uh, you know, but I was also thinking of the play True West by Sam Shepard, which is sort of like a version of Waiting for Godot, if you think about it. Um, and 
And, you know, is will these two brothers ever resolve their conflict? You know, will they ever uh, find peace? I feel like is more at the heart of, their, of that question. And of course, you know, in that play, no, there is no peace uh, for these these kind of two brothers are Cain and Abel, right? They're kind of a Cain and Abel uh, story, uh, um, Lee and Austin in True West. And uh, Sam Shepard, when he was asked about the ending of that play, uh, said uh, in an interview, he talked about the fact that for him, Lee and Austin are always going to be fighting with each other and, and that the play is cyclical. Um, and the play explores the possibility that they might find some sort of reconciliation. But in fact, that for him, it's a never-ending cycle. Um, and so in that case, in that play, the dramatic question is unresolved at the end, right? It doesn't answer itself, um, which I think is exciting, right, for theater. Like we, we, we wrestle through all the stuff, we work through it, Oh, there are no answers. You know, and I think Waiting for Goto is similar, you know, is kind of like we'll go to arrive. That's the existential as existential question, as existential question. Um and you know, the answer is really, you know, we don't know. <laughs> we don't know. Who knows if Goto will arrive? Uh but humanity waits sometimes for Goto um and seeks a kind of salvation for the wrongs in the world and the wrongs that are committed and and the feelings of failure and inadequacy that humans uh, often feel in the face of catastrophic events. And Gatto is an interesting play because, of course, it's a post-war war, post-World war, post war II play. And so it is really about, first of all, how do you survive catastrophe? Um, and will there be any salvation? <clears throat> Excuse me. Uh, having having survived, for those that have survived the catastrophe, um, is there salvation? You know, and I think that that's Beckett wrestling with himself in that play. In the Hunger Games, the question is, will Katniss win the Hunger Games? Right, and it's very simple. Um, and then everything in that structure of the Hunger Games is around, you know, her ability to win or not win. In Silence of the Lambs, a uh, famous film, um, you know, will Clarice catch Buffalo Bill? You know, like, there's, so this, like, really, this dramatic question could be really simple, right? Uh, but it is what's driving them. I think that in the Aristotelian sense, it's what's driving the plot uh, more than anything. Um, so, you know, I would say that, uh, the term dramatic question, um, was originally invented, um, to talk about plot construction of, of plays, but it's, you know, it's a term that can apply to other kinds of narrative, you know, um, Novels, uh, short stories uh, have dramatic questions sometimes attached to them. So this is not an unusual <clears throat> thing. The dramatic question is often 
related to not only plot construction, but also the idea of suspense. So, um, you know, and suspense is tied to the idea of how do you hold an audience's attention? So in a really simple way, suspense engages an audience's interest because they want to find out how things turn out, right? Uh, you know, uh, the writer prompts the audience or raises a specific question about how things will how things will turn out, right? You know, will Katniss win the Hunger Games? And so the audience is like, I wonder, will will Katniss win? <laughs> you know, um, so this kind of like you're kind of piquing the audience's curiosity, uh, and you know, there's a and then you're kind of on board. So so the dramatic question is, what I'm saying about that is that dramatic question is also tied to the idea of engagement and suspense. So suspense being the the tension between fear and doubt, right? You know, and um, but it's also the suspense of an audience of like the, the, the element of surprise of what happens next is related to the dramatic question. You know, dramatic question is posed. The audience is like, oh, okay, I'm on board. Oh, what's going to happen? You know, uh, how is it going to be resolved? And, you know, kind of the writer is kind of like, well, let me point you here. Let me point you here. Let me point you here. And you're kind of like, you know, pulling the, you know, pulling the audience along with you in that regard. Um, so I'll, you know, I'll sort of talk about a little bit about a play that, um, uh, I think some people know, I think, um, it's a play that tends to be covered a lot in modern drama courses. Um, a good play, uh, a play called Trifles, Trifles, T-R-I-F-L-E-S, by a wonderful, uh, modern American writer from the early part of the 20th century named Susan Glassbell. Uh, Susan uh, S-U-S-A-N, Glassbell, G-L-A-S-P-E-L-L, plays called Trifles, T-R-I-F-L-E-S. And so I'm just going to give you a brief rundown of Trifles. Um, in Trifles, there are five people that walk into a kitchen of an Iowa farmhouse on a winter morning. Three of them are men, a county prosecutor, county sheriff, and the owner of a neighboring farm who the day before happened to visit the house and discover their neighbor, the name of this person is John Wright, their neighbor, their neighbor has been strangled in their bed. And Wright's wife, Minnie, is in a, is in a very, you know, needless to say, strange state of mind. And is barely able to answer the prosecutor and sheriff's questions. And sh she can't remember what happened. I mean, it, there's a kind of, uh, obviously she's in shock. Her husband's been strangled. She's being questioned by the prosecutor and the county sheriff. And, but she seems to have no recollection or um, ability to kind of even hold a conversation. So and I mentioned there were five characters. So there's two other characters. There's two women, the wife of the sheriff and the wife of the neighbor. 
And they have also come along to gather some clothes for Minnie, who is, um, you know, in a state, uh, but is also being uh, taken to jail on suspicion of murder. Uh, right? The husband is strangled in bed. This The wife um, is in a state. The sheriff and prosecutor believe that she strangled him. Basically, that's sort of the what starts, what kicks the play off. off. So the two lawmen that have come in, the prosecutor and the sheriff, have come to try to discover what might have been the motive, right, for her to have killed her husband. Without a motive, obviously, the prosecutor can't prove um, an essential statutory element of the crime of murder in first or second degree. Um, so Glassbell, the writer, uh, brings out... Uh, she has the prosecutor ask the neighbor to review the events of the day before, uh, early in the play. And basically what happens is that you get a lot of exposition, right? You know, neighbor, what happened before you discovered that this man was strangled in their bed? Uh, and the character is like, bah, 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 let me tell you what happened. Um, but, you know, the what I'm saying about trifles is that it establishes a dramatic question uh, really early. Um and it directs the audience's attention to the events that immediately follow. Will a motive be found? Right? You know, this is sort of what's driving the plot. You know, man is strangled. We think it's the, uh, the sheriff thinks it's the wife. Uh, what's the motive? Right? And the play is going to be about discovering what the motive is. Um, maybe. Or maybe that's just a MacGuffin, right? But that's what's sort of driving the plot. Um, so it turns out that while the men are off stage searching for clues, outside in the barn, the women who've been puttering about the kitchen are curious about details. You know, they're just discovering uh, that are disarray in the house. And they start to reminisce about Minnie, the wife, before and after her marriage. And the women come upon a key clue that enables them to construct what happened and why Minnie strangled her husband, maybe in an act of, a, of insomnia, like rage and insomnia. So not a conscious act of murder, but a, a kind of sleep, a sleeplessness that leads to murder. So the initial dramatic question is answered. Uh, um, and you think, well, then the play is over. <laughs> but no, it's not. This is what's interesting. So what Glaspell does, it's really fascinating, is that you think, oh, well, we have the answer. The dramatic question was, is there a motive? These women are in the barn talking about what could have possibly happened. They're putting pieces together, and they come upon this. And we think, well, then we've got the answer. Um, uh, but then what happens is that there's a, this gives rise to a new interest in the audience and hopefully in the writing, which is, will the two women, one of whom is the sheriff's wife, reveal what they have discovered to the men? So the so the dramatic question that's initially posited, what's the motive, turns into having the information, these, these women have pieced together what they think is the motive, what are they going to do with it, right? So that becomes the new dramatic question of the play. which builds upon the existing dramatic question and actually moves the plot into the second gear. Um, so 
this curiosity around this, will they, will they tell, basically, will they tell the law what happened, uh, makes for a new dramatic question. And then this is resolved in the climax of the play, which takes place literally, you might be surprised, at the very end, like literally the last two lines of dialogue constitute the denouement at the ending of the play. Now, <clears throat> you could probably think about trifles in a different way, which is the the dramatic question could be, will the prosecutor come away with the motive he needs to get a conviction? This question is more specific than the one taken as initial in the account. Will a motive for the murder be found? If this is how you describe the dramatic question, then it's clear the curiosity is not resolved until the end of the play, when the women decide whether to tell the men what they have discovered. Um, but, you know, regardless of this, what I will say is that there's two steps to the dramatic question in, in the play Trifles. And the first, women discover the motive, thus taking us on a detour into a subordinate dramatic question about whether they will inform the men of what they have learned, and then making the resolution of the original dramatic question of the original motive dependent on the resolution of the secondary one. So it kind of becomes like a com compound sentence, right? It comes a compound dramatic question. There's one, there's the second gear of it. That second gear leads us back to the first gear and then to the denouement. So, I'll sort of reiterate and sort of as we wrap up um, the land of the dramatic question. Uh, a dramatic question is always a specific point of curiosity. We should think of it as the form of, we should think of it as follows, whether X will happen or not, instead of just what's going to happen, right? I think saying whether X will happen or not, whether, you know, if you, if you structure it that way, whether X will happen or not, um, gives you a kind of forward momentum as opposed to what's going to happen, which it has a more passive construction around it. Um, and, and then you could get a little bit more specific, which is whether X will happen or not, and if so, exactly how, or if not, precisely how and why not, right? That gets you into plot, really su super simple, right? So the dramatic question, whether X will happen or not, and if so, exactly how? Or, if not, precisely how and why not, right? So, and again, I, I think of like Doll's House is structured this way. There's a lot of plays that are structured this way. Not all plays, um, but a lot of them that are, that are, you know, more conventionally drawn have, a, have at their root this kind of compound dramatic question and, um, you know, a plot that sort of, that sort of allows that to kind of reveal itself along the way. Um, suspense is only one of the ways stories and plays can be designed to hold audiences' interest. So, um, you know, some stories, um, forgo getting us to wonder about whether certain outcomes will be realized and seek to interest us instead in finding out why something has happened or some other aspect of the meaning of events. 
and even stories that heavily exploit suspense can offer more to engage our interest in much more. A reader whose attention is restricted to suspense is not only incapable of deriving pleasure from works that are constructed on different principles, but is condemned to only a superficial appreciation of what is going on in many a work that is artfully constructed around suspense. Um, when we are in suspense, the facts that eventually resolve our suspense acquire a certain emphasis, and skillful authors make sure that emphasis occurs to no point. Instead, they will arrange for that emphasis to fall upon facts, whose concrete connotations somehow lead to thematically relevant issues. Sophisticated readers, therefore, will be in the habit of not only enjoying the resolution, but of being curious about the larger ramifications of whatever cluster of facts that answers each dramatic question it has been hooked by. Um, some stories turn upon a single dramatic question. Others are built upon a chain of dramatic questions in which the resolution of one gives rise to the to rise in turn to the emergence of another, hence the trifles example. Suspense plots that strike us as unified and coherent will not just present us with a succession of dramatic questions. Instead, the questions will be linked by a particular sort of logical dependence, cause and effect. The resolution of one will be the condition for the next one's being relevant to occur, etc. Um, so uh, there's a film uh, which, you have, if you haven't seen, uh, I urge you to watch. Um, uh, it doesn't. It doesn't get a lot of um, love, I think, in film studies or, or even in dramatic writing studies, uh, for reasons that escape me. But uh, it's a film called Michael Clayton. Michael Clayton. Uh, it starred George Clooney and Tilda Swinton, um, and. It's a it's a whistleblower film, right? It's a it's a film about corporate malfeasance, and somebody discovers this corporate malfeasance is occurring. Um, it's put in a moral position of having to decide whether they're gonna cover it up, expose it, or expose it, right? And and much of the plot revolves around. The the suspense what I would call the suspenseful part of the plot the plot the, the sort of surface suspense part of the plot is around oh you know uh the you know exposing this is gonna ruin this person's life they're in danger uh, how are they gonna get out of it how are they gonna survive you know uh, and you know it puts them in a thorny position um, and that and that story is structured around a kind of coming into their own, like the, the George Clooney character, Michael Clayton, comes into their own. They they start as somebody who is like, I don't want to, who doesn't want to be a whistleblower. And then as the plot moves forward, they, they can't help themselves. The situation is so dire that they realize they have to take a moral stand. It's like a very interesting uh, film that way. It's a film about taking a moral stand um, and the price you pay for doing so. Um, and I mention it because I think that the film, the surface of that film, uh, feels very conventional. It, there's something about it that's, you know, part mystery, part thriller, part, uh, procedural. Um, 
and it's shot, you know, it's filmed in a very conventional manner. Um, you know, and what I mean by that is that it, there's something invisible about it, like, um, which is actually really hard to do, but, um, it doesn't feel like it's been directed. <laughs> um, you know, it just sort of happens. Uh, so it has a kind of old fashioned, uh, I'm just going to get out of the way and tell the story kind of quality about it. Um, which has its own pleasures, right? It, you don't, you can't really see the director's hand in it. Um, unless you're studying the film very carefully, it's actually expertly directed and, uh, brilliantly scored. Um, yeah, it's a very sophisticated film and, and I think it's just gotten a, I'm not saying it's gotten a bad rap, but like it got good reviews and et cetera. But I think that it's a film that doesn't get studied a lot. And I think that I would say that it's a good film to look at when you're thinking about the dramatic question, because actually it's a very complex and sophisticated film about how it's handling uh, that that very concept uh, and how it's holding an audience's attention um, and doing so in a way that I think is um, unexpected. I think that's what the, one of the reasons I think about that film is because it feels like it's going to hit the story beats in a very um, expected manner. Uh, which has its own pleasures, um, but it kind of doesn't do that. <laughs> it kind of at almost at almost at every turn. It it takes like a different, it takes like a different moment, a di different leap, um, and goes somewhere else, um, and still holds the dramatic question at uh, at at, at center. Um, so you know, if you haven't seen Michael Clayton. It's got very strong performances. Tilda won an Oscar for it. Um, it's a really, like, it's a very, very, it's just a very smart film uh, in terms of the way it's built. Um, Tony Goldwyn did the screenplay. Um, yeah, and it's just, like, expertly done. Um, and, I, and I would just say, just study it. You know what I mean? Because I think that it's actually really helpful uh, to consider whether it's whether it's your aesthetic lean or not, right? You know, I just think there's something about it that's really, really, it really holds up in terms of thinking about the dramatic question. Um, so I'll say a couple more things about the dramatic question before I sign off on this lecture. Um, if we undertake to organize our reflections on our experience of a story in light of the concept of dramatic question, we will end up frustrated. <laughs> <laughs> rather than furthering our insight if we look for the dramatic question. To, to do this is to proceed from a false assumption that a unified work of art will be structured around a single point of suspense, right? So I, th I think this is worth saying because I think that as writers, you're going to be asked in certainly in classroom situations, um, you know, what's the dramatic question? And then everything has to be structured around that, right? You know, that is a false assumption. The dramatic question leads, kind of leads, and it helps you organize your plot. <laughs> but, you know, it doesn't mean you can't take detours and all these things when you're writing. Um, but it also, I think the fallacy around 
the assumption that uh, it is the only way to make a unified work of art um, get gets you out of thinking of more sophisticated ways of thinking. Um, I think when you're writing a very short play, it's actually really helpful uh, to think about the dramatic question early because you don't have time, right? So if you're writing 10 minutes, you actually don't have a lot of time to develop anything. <laughs> you can you can tell the world in 10 minutes, by the way, but um, you don't have a lot of time to develop. So I think that it's useful to kind of create a kind of beautiful jewel of a play. Now, it still can be tantalizing and mysterious, um, but that has a that has an elegance about it. Um, I'll, I'll reiterate on this in just a second. So to do this, to proceed from the false assumption that a unified work of art we structured around a single point of suspense. As soon as we come up with one, we'll stop our examination rather than ask ourselves what suspense uncertainty uncertainty this may have been designed to give rise to and what previous point of suspense was resolved in a specific way in order for this one to have arisen. That is, as a as a viewer of work, as a reader of work, we want to look for additional dramatic questions and we want to get clear on a network of conditional relations that make them together amount to a coherent and unified sequence. So I think this is key, right? What you're looking for is not one dramatic question, but additional dramatic questions that allow for a network of conditional relations to kind of make the story happen, uh, make the plot happen. So this is like, I think, a really helpful way of thinking about this. Um, dramatic question is not the same thing as exposition. It is not. If these terms mean the same thing, and there's no chain of successive dramatic questions. Or we'd have to stretch the term exposition to cover the unfolding of information throughout the plot until its final dramatic question gets posed. And then we need to devise some new term to cover what the term exposition now points to. There's an additional reason why you want to keep the two terms distinctly in your mind. They're related to each other as a means to an end. The point of exposition is to put the initial dramatic question on the table. The term exposition reminds us that even if the author has decided on what is to be the initial dramatic question, the problem of exposition, literally putting out, setting forth, still remains. How will this speedily and relatively unobtrusive, how will this be accomplished? How will the necessary background history and facts be worked in that the audience's curiosity about what will happen, be aroused. So even if you want to plunge your audience immediately into the dramatic question, it can take some imagination and revision to figure out how to do this. Keep the two, I'm just going to reiterate for a second, keep the two concepts in your mind as separate. Dramatic situation and exposition. The dramatic situation presented in the exposition may or may not correspond to the dramatic situation. So, so this probably doesn't make sense. So I'll kind of um, 
let me rephrase this. Stories that set out to raise dramatic questions generally arrange eventually to resolve them, but not every story will do so. In rare cases, authors will choose to frustrate the audience's wish for resolution of the final dramatic question. So this is probably useful to think about for a moment, uh, which is that the term dramatic question has nothing to do with the, with the word dramatic in the sense of sensational, emphatic, or obvious. A dramatic question in a play, story, or poem can perfectly be unassuming or subtle. It need only be interesting. Specifically, it engages our interest in how a particular possible outcome will be fulfilled or not. Simple as that. I'll repeat that. The dramatic question engages our interest in how a particular possible outcome will be fulfilled or not. <clears throat> Finally, it's worth reminding ourselves that the concept dramatic question is logically distinct from the concept of dramatic situation. Since both notions point to an important aspect of the way plot works in narrative, <coughs> excuse me, and dramatic, <coughs> excuse me, dramatic and narrative works, it is worth the effort to keep them distinct in our minds and usage. So, dramatic question and dramatic situation are two different things. They're related, of course. The dramatic question that the play trifles. I mentioned before presents us is will be will there a motive be found for Minnie killing her husband as the action unfolds the first first question is resolved and then it's intensified and made more specific the dramatic situation has to do with the conflict of will will desire animate and inanimate forces that the play seeks to engage our immersion in to solicit identification and sympathy and arouse our antipathies. And so there are several conflicts of will and impulse. Will and impulse, will and institution that are important in the larger situation that play brings to our attention. So the dramatic question arises, the dramatic situation is how we get into the mess of the play, basically. Um, so I think that that's sort of a helpful way of thinking about this. Part of what tempts us to confusion between the phrase dramatic question and the phrase dramatic situation is that both terms are associated with the term resolution, uh, but that this latter term itself carries logically different meanings. We can speak of dramatic questions as getting resolved. We can speak of conflicts in general and of dramatic situations as getting resolved, but the term resolution is actually carrying a different sense in these phrases. When a dramatic question is resolved, it is answered. In other words, the resolution of a dramatic question is an answer. When a conflict is resolved, and hence a dramatic situation, the resolution is a victory of one force will desire agent power over another. So this is crucial on one hand, you have the dramatic question gets answered. The dramatic situation is how this conflict is resolved, um, which can lead to one person winning, one person losing, or a more delicate process of negotiation. 
So just there's some thoughts on the dramatic question. It's uh, probably prattled on uh, more than enough, <laughs> more than enough uh, for today. But um, just to get us started and thinking about this concept, which I think sometimes in writing can trip us up. Um, but it's not meant to. It's really just a tool, you know, and it's a useful tool to help clarify what you're working on, how you're working on it. You know, it leads you sometimes to understanding better about what kind of uh, play you're making, um, poem or narrative or story. Um, yeah, so that's that's a little bit on the dramatic question. More soon. Thanks for listening. Thank <laughs> you.